three. And it kind of reminds me of when a child is so excited to tell you about all the amazing things that have happened in their day. And they're like, and then, and then, and then. Um, although to be fair, that's possibly what this sermon might be a little bit like. <laughs> so, because it's very exciting. So what we get from Mark is this fast-paced narrative that does not hold back any punches. And the first half of Mark's gospel is all centered around who Jesus is and confirming his ident- identity. Who he is and what he came to accomplish. There's no birth story. The very first line announces um, Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark then starts the narrative with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, which we heard about from Nikki a few weeks ago. Um, And this is where God announces him as his son. Then he dives straight into Jesus' public ministry. So one key concept in Mark is Jesus' authority, um, starting with the announcement that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is the renewal of all things, and Jesus is making a bold claim. He is here to restore all creation. As chapter one um, progresses at breakneck speed, we see various examples of Jesus' authority. We see it in the call of his first disciples where they literally drop everything and go with him. Jesus then begins to teach and people are amazed because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Before chapter one is done, he has driven out an impure spirit and healed many. When we go into chapter two, we see Jesus' authority to forgive sins and his authority over Old Testament law. As he goes on teaching with parables and challenging teachers of the law, he gathers crowds wherever he goes. Now, don't worry, we're gonna slow things down a bit as we land at the end of chapter four. What follows are four miracles in quick succession which unfold the extent of Jesus' authority. And we're going to examine these to see what they tell us about Jesus as, number one, Lord over the natural world. Number two, Lord over the spiritual realm. Number three, Lord Lord over sickness. And number four, Lord over death. So the first one, Jesus is Lord over the natural world. Our first section is at the end of chapter four, starting at verse 35, um, a well-known passage about Jesus calming a storm. Prior to this, Jesus has been teaching crowds of people from the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And after this, Jesus and the disciples cross over to the other side and a storm rises up. In this passage, we see a juxtaposition between Jesus, fully human, and Jesus, fully God. I think Mark's liberal use of this word, the euthus, which is the immediately straight away just then, helps create this impression of just how much Jesus is doing in such a short time. Whilst we know that God does not sleep and Jesus was God, he had a fully human body that got tired just like ours does. I know I'm probably gonna need a nap after this, so I can't imagine how much of a rest Jesus' body needed. So Jesus is asleep when the storm starts. 
Now, I'm pretty talented at napping anywhere and everywhere, but let's take a look at where Jesus was taking a nap. It's not the comfiest nap spot I've ever seen. Um, So these boats that were the, the fishing boats are actually pretty dinky. And although the Sea of Galilee is not huge, it's actually more of a big lake than a sea, Um, The shape of the hills surrounding it channeled the wind and the storms were notorious for being pretty sudden and devastating to these small boats. So here is where we see this juxtaposition come in. He is fully human, so he needs his rest, but he's also fully God, so he doesn't need to be scared of the storm because he has total control. We are also told in the Psalms that humans can lie down and sleep as a sign of the of their trust in God. So while everyone else is terrified, Jesus is still asleep. (laughs) The disciples actually have to physically wake him up. They ask him, don't you care if we drown? There's a weird dichotomy here between um, where the disciples don't fully understand who Jesus is, but at the same time, they also know or expect him to be able to do something about their situation. So Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind and waves and calm is restored. He doesn't say a lengthy prayer, petitioning for calm. He simply says, quiet, be still. The simplicity of this highlights his authority. He isn't requesting, he is demanding. Commanding, not demanding, (laughs) commanding. He then asks the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It may seem a bit harsh, especially as one, it was well known that people were killed in these storms. And two, crying out to God when faced with a spot of storm trouble is completely in line with Old Testament scriptures. And I've got a couple of examples of them up there. However, Jesus is on board. The disciples' lack of faith demonstrated that they still didn't grasp who Jesus was. When Jesus said, let us go across to the other side, it was a promise. The ship cannot go down while Jesus is on board. Perhaps Jesus is also frustrated because he has called them to do as he does, to be with him and partner with him. He has brought the power of the kingdom and they have access to it, yet they still have no faith. One thought is that having had Jesus demonstrate the power of the kingdom to his disciples, it was time for them to do some work. We see many places in the gospel where Jesus invites his disciples to take part in miracles, but time and time again, they lack faith. If we think back to Genesis, God's plan was for humans to have dominion over all creation, to oversee it and manage its life-sustaining abilities. But with the fall, our dominion over creation was selfish rather than for the glory of God, thus bringing destruction. Our planet was created to be life-sustaining, yet we have starvation. The destruction of natural habitats for selfish gain mean the diversity of God's creation is reducing every day. Flooding gets worse with deforestation, whereas Jesus brings peace and restorative power to creation, and he expects his followers to partner with him in doing the same. So after Jesus has rebuked them, the disciples ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. 
For the ancient cultures of the Middle East, um, the sea was something to be feared. It was vast, dangerous, and full of mythical creatures. The waters resent, re represented the cosmic powers of chaos, which goes all the way back to the creation story. Jewish people understood that God was the only one who had control of the wind and waves. But here was a human with authority over them. So in this short space of time, the disciples have seen both the complete humanity of Jesus as well as the fullness of his divinity. Yet they still struggle to comprehend who he is. So now we move on to Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm. And we're now in chapter five and Jesus has crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He is now in Gentile, which just means non-Jewish um, territory. And the significance of this will become clear as we work through this passage. So here Jesus is met by a man with an impure spirit. Mark makes sure that we know this man is unclean. He tells us the man is inhabited by an impure spirit. He mentions not once, not twice, but three times that this guy lives among the tombs. And who else hangs around in tombs? Dead people. And as the Old Testament scriptures make it clear, death is unclean. And not only this, he's a Gentile. He is practically radioactive in terms of uncleanliness. He has been banished from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Previously, we saw that the disciples are puzzled by Jesus' identity, but here the demons are clear. Falling down in front of him is not falling down in worship, but in acknowledgement of his authority. They name him as son of the most high God. Now, this isn't the first time in Mark that Jesus has driven out demons. He also drove out a demon in the synagogue in chapter one. There, the demons refer to him as the son of God rather than the most high. But why? What's, why is there a difference? In Israel, there is one God, but in Gentile lands, there are loads of other gods. You think about how many gods the Romans had. So Jesus is not the son of a God, but son of the most high God. Although the demons acknowledge him, it is not without challenge. The demons are trying to power play Jesus here. Um, when he asks their name, they tell him they are called legion. Now a Roman legion was made up of 6,000 men. And that's not to say that this man was possessed by 6,000 demons, but it's just to illustrate that there were many of them. Jesus is not intimidated though, because he has ultimate authority. Jesus gives them permission to go and enter a herd of pigs. But why pigs? Remember, this is Gentile land, and for Jews, pigs are unclean. So Jesus sending the unclean spirit into animals that are unclean to then be destroyed is demonstrative of not just banishment, but purification. And where are they destroyed? In the waters. Jesus once again demonstrates his power over the chaos waters of destruction and evil by using them to cleanse and liberate the demon-possessed man. 
With the demons gone, the man is restored to his right mind, but the news has spread and the locals are scared. They have two options, to move forward in faith or retreat in fear, in rejection of what Jesus has done. The people ask Jesus to leave. How much healing and restoration did they miss out on by allowing fear to lead them to the rejection of the kingdom? Unsurprisingly, the man who's been restored begs Jesus to let him go along with him. But Jesus tells him to go home to his own people and tell them what the Lord has done for him, which he does. And it says that people were amazed. In his early ministry, we often see Jesus telling people to keep quiet after he has performed miracles. So why not here? One thought is that being Gentile territory, there won't be the same um, messianic uh, expectancy as in Jewish areas, so there's a less chance of Jesus' identity being misunderstood. And another is that Jesus wanted this man to act as a missionary in the Gentile area, um, to be, as Spurgeon calls him, a standing sermon, and what a testimony. This previously possessed man has been restored to his right mind and now can also be restored to his community. The fact that we have this episode of demon banishment in Gentile territory shows us that the kingdom of God has come not to just redeem the Jews, but the Gentiles too. Jesus is Lord over all spiritual beings in all lands. Now, the third and fourth miracles are tied together using a literary device often affectionately known as the Mark and Sandwich, as Mark is particularly fond of this style of storytelling. So we have a main narrative, um, which is Jairus begging Jesus to come heal his daughter, and sandwiched in the middle, we have a second narrative about a woman who has been healed from her sickness. These sandwich stories allow Mark to comment on them side by side to allow one story to reinforce and contrast um, the other. And also, being Mark creates a bit of drama. So another reason to group these stories together is that the combination of sickness and death is more pertinent to ancient readers than perhaps it is to us in modern times with modern medicine. In those times, sickness was the edge of death. So many illnesses that we don't think much um, of now because they can be treated so easily would have been fatal at the time. So when we see these stories of Jesus healing the sick, not only are they healed from their illness, but they are being restored to life. So Jesus and his disciples have crossed back over the lake into Jewish territory and we are first introduced to Jairus, who is the leader of the synagogue. He would have been a man of status and wealth, prominent in the community. Jairus's daughter is dying and he pleads Jesus to come and heal her. On his way to Jairus's house, we hear about the sick woman who has been suffering from chronic bleeding. So here we have number three, Jesus is Lord over sickness. We see a stark contrast between the two characters here. The woman doesn't even get a name. Because of her bleeding disorder, she is perpetually unclean and therefore cut off from her community. She was probably unmarried 
possibly even divorced because of her condition. She would be unable to worship in the synagogue, so probably felt cut off from God too. Everyone she touched would become unclean and even the places she sat would be unclean. She was poor as she had spent all her money on doctors only for nothing to work. What's special about her is that she doesn't beg Jesus or make any kind of request to him. She understood Jesus's power was so great that even touching just the very edge of his outer garment would heal her. So Jesus realizes that the power has gone out of him. And this wording is significant when we talk about who Jesus is. The power comes out of him, not through him. He himself is the source of power. He's not merely a vehicle um, for God's power because he is God. Then Jesus calls out, who touched my cloak? As the disciples point out, the place is really crowded, so obviously people are touching him. Jesus knew exactly who it was. This was for the benefit of the woman. She has great faith and amidst fear and potential humiliation, she falls down and tells Jesus the whole truth. He called her out not to humiliate her, but to reassure her that she was indeed healed. And so the others would know that she was healed because otherwise she's an unclean woman who would take her word for it. But now everyone has heard it announced that she is healed. He also made sure that she knew it was by her faith, not because Jesus was wearing some sort of magic cloak. We then have this really beautiful moment where Jesus calls her daughter. Did you know that she is the only person to be recorded in the Bible as being called daughter by Jesus? In calling her daughter, he is restoring her relationship to God and with her community after 12 years. Finally, we come to number four, Lord over death. After the woman is healed, we are informed that Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus tells Jairus not to fear, but to just believe. On arriving at the house, there was a commotion of people crying and wailing. These wouldn't have just been friends and relatives, but professional mourners who come and facilitate the start of the funeral and burial. You didn't hang around in those days when it came to burying a body, so everything happened very quickly. Jesus then announces that the girl is merely asleep. And these people, who are professionals in death, laugh at him. In verse 40, Mark writes that Jesus puts them all out. Now, the Greek word he uses here is ekbalo. And this is the same word which is also used for the driving or casting out of demons and evil spirits, which I think adds another level to this. He's not just sending them out of the house to get out of his way. He is driving out their unbelief. Jesus then takes the girl by the hand and tells her to get up. Jesus didn't actually need to touch her. His word would have been enough. But in touching her, he is again making a point of his power over uncleanliness, that his purifying power means nothing can defile him. Now, one final bit of Greek 
I'm sorry, it's really hard when you have a linguistic interest to <laughs> skip over the Greek. So um, we're going to look at two verbs in verses 41 and verse 42, where one of the verbs is egero, which translates to get up, and anistemi, which is tr translated as to stand up. Both of these verbs can also be translated as to rise. And Mark uses both of them later in the gospel to describe Jesus rising from the dead. So here he puts in this strategic link that points ahead to Jesus's resurrection and final defeat of death. Throughout this section, Mark has beautifully woven contrasts and parallels. The woman is healed because of her own faith. The girl is healed because of the faith of another. Both are unclean, one through illness and one through death, with an act of touch from Jesus being what restores them. One attempted to be healed in secret, but Jesus brought it out into the open. The other's healing was requested publicly, but was done in secret. One has been living in death for 12 years, and the other has met death after only living for 12 years. Both are daughters, restored to life, to family, and to community. Mark shows us that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is invading this world, which is enslaved to sin. He shows us that Jesus is fully man, but also fully God, who experiences the brokenness of this world as we experience it. He shows us Jesus' demonstration of his ultimate authority, over creation, over evil, over sickness, and over death. But all of this points forward to his ultimate victory when he himself was crucified and overcame death to rise again. In his authority, Jesus brings purity and restoration to the world. And that restoration is for everyone. Creation, Gentiles and Jews, men and women, adult and child, rich and poor, those considered pure and the impure. These stories also tell us about faith. Mark often refers to perception, describing how some will have eyes to see and ears to hear, how some will grasp Jesus' identity and others not. The demons knew who Jesus was, but to simply know him is not enough. In James 2.19, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The disciples knew Jesus, but lacked the faith to perceive him. Jairus and the woman healed from illness had only heard of Jesus, yet they had faith. Faith in the tiniest touch of the very edge of a cloak. Faith in the face of death. But remember that it is not the power of faith that heals, but the power of Jesus. It's not a case of the greater our faith, the more God will do for us. Faith provides the conditions for the miraculous power of the kingdom to break out. Each story contains an element of both faith and fear. When faced with life's difficulties, fear is our earth-centered reaction and faith is our God-centered response. The only thing we need to fear is that 
we will let him pass us by without reaching out to touch him. In the face of absolute hopelessness, cast off your fear and reach out. As Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus comes to us from the cross with the power to cast out, heal and restore. So what can his resurrection power do for you? What do you need to be rescued from and restored to? Or maybe, like the man who is demon-possessed, perhaps you have a story of healing that you could be proclaiming so that people are amazed. Jesus has power over any situation we face. There is no storm he can't still, no sin, no addiction or behavior that he can't free us from. There is no relationship he can't restore. There is nothing he can't redeem. He can heal your pain and relieve your suffering. He can bring you new life.